Uh, but before we get to work, would you, would you please ask God to help us all and help you as we, as we consider the text before us this morning? Father, we know that your word is beautiful, and we know, Lord, that you speak amazing and wonderful things to your people through your scripture. And Father, we know that you desire above all things, having sent your son to die for us on the cross. We know your desire now is to work in our hearts to continue to shape and mold us to be more like him, to be the people that you ransomed and redeemed us to become. And so, Father, we just want you to have your way in our hearts this morning. We want you to be king, not only over all the earth, but inside these these souls that have been ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. So, Father, we pray that your spirit would go before us, knowing that is your desire, we ask according to your will, that your spirit would shine upon the text on the page, that it would illuminate before us your truth. And we do pray and we do ask God that you would take the truth and the meaning of this passage and you would drive it home into our hearts and that you, Lord, would continue to mold and shape our lives, that we would be a people who would walk in obedience to you. We pray and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I am one of those guys that likes to watch those documentaries that you sometimes see on TV where they're doing something like knee replacement surgery. Anybody else here like to watch those kinds of things? My wife doesn't understand it. I don't know that she'll ever understand it. I'm flipping channels. There's a surgery. Oh, let's watch it. You know, and she's like, oh, here we go again. You know, and we, they get into a particular, I'm recalling now a knee surgery that happened not too long ago that I was watching. And of course, they peel back the skin of the knee and they're, they're yanking stuff out. They're going to replace this guy's knee. They're going to chop off certain bones and, you know, they're doing all this stuff and they're just, and they're just, they're yanking it and there's blood squirting and Shanti's just like, I, I don't, I don't understand how you can watch this. And so, of course, I give the only answer that a godly man can give. I don't know either, but I can't look away. There's just something about it I have to, I have to see. Uh, it, it is horrific, but yet it's so fascinating, you know, and, uh, and so we watch these, these sorts of things. I do anyway. My wife leaves the room. Um, but uh, we, we were watching this documentary a few weeks ago, and there was a nurse in the operating room who was coughing, and uh, she had the little surgical mask on that they wear, and she's coughing, and the, the guy's like sawing and pulling parts and stuff out to replace this guy's knee. And uh, she, the doctor says to, to the nurse who's coughing, you know, if you'll stop smoking, that cough will go away. And of course she says, I know, I know, I shouldn't be smoking. You know, and you'd think of all the people, those in the medical profession would fully understand the dangers that are there that are inherent with smoking. And uh, she's coughing. And so he, he says, oh, I'll prescribe you. And he, he, he's going to prescribe her a thing that will help her deal with her cough. I don't remember now what it was. Um, and, and then the next episode, the next surgery, I tune back in. I'm like, oh, what's going to happen now? And uh, they're sitting there yanking this guy's hip apart. They're doing a hip replacement. And uh, the, the same nurse is there, and it's the same doctor. And uh, she starts coughing. And he says, you, you know that the prescription that I wrote for you, it's only going to treat your symptom, but it won't actually completely cure your cough. And then he goes on to give her a hard time about continuing to smoke. That's a little bit like the scripture we're looking at today. The Apostle Paul here in 1 Timothy, addressing the reality of false teachers in Ephesus, speaking to the issues that they spoke to, 
and trying to provide biblical understanding. He makes the assertion that the way that the teachers are using the law is the wrong way. They are using the law in an unlawful manner. That's what he's getting at. And so what we're going to look at today as we consider 1 Timothy, what we're going to see is that the law is good, but it is not the ultimate cure. It addresses symptoms, but it can never, ever fix what is truly broken in all of us. So if you'll turn with me now, 1 Timothy chapter 1. As we've been working our way through this passage, you'll recall that the reason that Paul even writes this letter, the first and, and most basic urge, the command that he gives him, he says, stay there, stay at Ephesus in order that you will charge certain people not to teach any different doctrine. So there are some individuals there who are teaching a different doctrine. And towards the end of chapter one, he points out two of them. He says in verse nine, chapter one, verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. They've swerved away from Jesus Christ. They've destroyed their belief. And he identifies them, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So these are two of the false teachers that Paul is going to identify. We're not entirely sure of what exactly it is that they are teaching. We don't know concretely from 1 Timothy, but we get some ideas of some things that they're, they're touching on. We know that they are focused in on the law. If you jump down to verse 6, again, he, men- he mentions these false teachers, and he says, certain persons by swerving from these. Now, that's exactly what he says at the end of the chapter when he identifies Alexander and Jimenez. So, so swerving from what? And we saw last week that the charge of our preaching, the charge of true biblical preaching, is love that comes from, number one, a pure heart, number two, a good conscience, That is not the same thing as a clear conscience, a good, well-adjusted conscience that is calibrated by the scriptures. We saw that last week. And a sincere faith. And then swerving from that, these guys have made shipwreck of their faith. And he makes the assertion, they have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So we don't know exactly what it is that they're teaching, but we do know that there is a preoccupation there with the law. Whatever it is that these teachers are teaching in Ephesus, whatever it is that they're getting at, they are using the Old Testament law codes and legal requirements as a foundation, as a basis for what it is that they are writing. Now, before we jump in here, I do want to just point out to you one thing that is of absolute concern to the Apostle Paul, and that is the speed with which apostasy moves. It moves fast. Paul does not stop to encourage Timothy like he does in many of his other letters. He doesn't say, dear Timothy, you're a good boy. I I remember you with my prayers, and I pray for you, and I pray this for you, and I'm glad to see you doing this. You'll find that in many of his other letters. But he doesn't make that statement here. He moves in. He says, this is why you need to stay in Ephesus. You stay put in order to tell people to stop teaching certain things. In the 1960s, Billy Graham came to prominence within American evangelicalism. And he hosted crusades all across North America, really all around the world. And 1960s, the 60s in particular, were known as a time of incredible social upheaval. 
but it was also a time of incredible evangelistic fervor within the American evangelical church. In the 70s, in fact, evangelicals came into such prominence within the culture that Time magazine in 1974 declared the year, 1974, the year of the evangelical. A number of new ministries were started. This was the rise of youth ministry, young people wanting to give their lives to Christ and wanting to be discipled. And yet, sadly, in just a decade, within just a decade, in 1987, James Davison Hunter with Chicago Press published a book titled The Coming Generation of Evangelicalism. And he basically within this book did a survey of nine evangelical liberal arts colleges that were now teaching and instructing many of those younger evangelicals who came to faith in the 70s and had grown up and had gone off to university he surveyed nine liberal arts colleges and seven evangelical, these are all evangelical liberal arts colleges and seven evangelical seminaries. And as he looked carefully at the curriculum and sat through and audited several of these courses that were being presented within these schools, he made this observation, quote, there is now here in 1987 and he's comparing this against the year of the evangelical in 1974, there is now here less sharpness, less boldness, and accordingly a measure of opaqueness in their theological vision that simply did not exist a decade ago. What a difference 10 years can make. He went further and he said, what is happening is an alteration in the cultural meaning of orthodoxy. An alteration of orthodoxy. And accordingly, an alteration in the cultural meaning of orthodoxy. In each case, there is a broadening of the meaning of some of evangelicals' religious symbols, such as baptism and communion. The meaning of other doctrines, such as the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, or justification through Christ alone, and even the nature and the goal of the Great Commission and what it is that we are to be doing as a church have become much more inclusive than what we saw just a decade ago. He is saying, essentially, that within evangelicalism, regardless of the fervor and the passion and the zeal of what he noted in the 70s, here we are just a decade later in the mid to late 80s, and it's beginning to twist. It's becoming opaque. And so one of the reasons why Paul is writing to Timothy is because Paul understood under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit what we have seen time and again throughout 2,000 years of church history. Apostasy moves so fast. You think it's not an issue and within just the breath of a moment it has seized your church. And so there are false teachers here at Ephesus, and Timothy, you need to be quick to the task at hand, which is ordering them not to teach. Again, we don't know exactly what it is that they're teaching, but they are focusing in on the law. That much is clear. Um, probably about three years ago, I got a little thing in the mail uh, saying that uh, they were doing tours of Israel. I've always wanted to go to Israel. I've always wanted to see the Holy Land and tour around. I've always thought that would be absolutely fascinating to be able to do that. And there was this little brochure that came in the mail that says, 
you know, if you can get 10 people from your church to go, then you, the pastor, get to go for free. So I was like, cool, I'm going to do this. I'm going to recruit some guys to pay, you know, and then you flip it open and see what the cost is going to be. It's like $4,000. You're like, oh, that's a tough one. I don't know if I can sell 10 people in my church on a $4,000 commitment. But she started, I started reading this brochure, and it says you really need to get these people to come to Israel because this year, and I don't remember exactly what year it was. I think it was not, either 2009 or 2010. Uh, uh, it says you need to come because this year, as a part of our tour of the Holy Land, we're giving special instruction. Ooh, special instruction that you won't find anywhere else. And so I thought to myself, ooh, interesting. I wonder, I'm thinking some sort of cool visit to an archaeological dig site that is off limits. I'm thinking uh, some neat artifact that's not a part of the normal scheduled tour. So I flipped the page in the brochure. I thought, I'm intrigued. And then they go on to quote this passage from John chapter 21. It says, when Jesus came back from, when he resurrected, he met the disciples on the beach and he tells them, children, cast your net in on the other side of the boat. And they hauled in 153 fish. And it said, note the number 153. That's when you always know. Whatever they're about to say, this is ridiculous. And of course, they went on to say something ludicrous. 153 years have passed since such and such event in the 1800s of church history. And as a result, we know the return of the Lord is imminent in 2010. Of course, you know it's 2017, right? You're all aware of this. So I thought to myself, how am I going to convince 10 people in my church to commit $4,000 to go hear heresy? Because I really still wanted to see the nation of Israel. You know? <laughs> Obviously, we didn't go. I didn't recruit anybody. The Lord spoke to my heart. But I have prayed about this number, 153. Indeed, I stayed up all night fasting and praying and on my face before the Lord. And I can tell you why they said that they caught, why the scripture says that they caught 153 fish. Anybody want to know why they caught 100, why it says they caught 153 fish? I'll tell you why. Because when the scripture says that the disciples caught 153 fish, what the scriptures wanted you to know was that they did not catch 154, and they did not catch, anybody know where I'm going with this? 152, that's right. They want you to know that they caught 153 fish. There's no indication that there's any prophecy or any kind of crazy end times revelation going on there. It's very simple. This is a historical fact. It's not a figment of our imagination. How do you know? There's a lot of little details here. We ate breakfast together on the beach. We were out fishing in the sea, and we pulled in 153 fish. That's how many fish we got. That's what the Bible wants you to know. So when we come to the Old Testament... One of the things you find in the Old Testament, in addition to the moral law, in addition to the ceremonial law, you find a lot of numerical things. You find a lot of emphasis on having the festivals happening at certain times in the year, whether it's the Feast of Trumpets, whether it's Passover, whether it's Pentecost. And although we don't know exactly what it is that these false teachers were teaching, it seems likely that on some level they were looking to these Old Testament laws, these Old Testament prescriptions, and they were trying to divine, they were trying to uncover some meaning beneath the text that was beyond the plain meaning of the text. And they were trying to stylize themselves as knowledgeable and informed teachers of the law. And they were attempting to draw the disciples away after them with this false and erroneous teaching. 
And so Paul says, you need to stop these guys from talking. And he's been very clear here. They have swerved from the faith. And he's very clear at the tail end of chapter 1 where he says they have made shipwreck of their faith. Their teaching diminishes Jesus Christ. It diminishes the good news of what God has done for us on the cross. And because of that, it must be silenced. Now, this all begs the question, what is the law there for? What is the lawful use of the law? In verse 8, Paul makes the statement, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So there is a lawful use of the law. There is an unlawful use of the law. And all of us look to the law for various points of instruction or counsel or guidance. And so it would behoove us to ask the question, what is Paul's meaning here when he says this? What is the lawful, the correct, the appropriate use, the God-ordained use of the law? He goes further, verse 9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just or for the righteous. It is not laid down for the just, but it is laid down for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers. And as we are working our way through this, you might see a close parallel here from what Paul says to what you find in the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue. There is a close parallel here. He's ta- he's ta- he started off by talking about the lawless and the disobedient. He goes on to say ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane. These are clear references to the first several commandments of the Ten Commandments where it says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven images. You shall keep the Sabbath holy. Uh, these types of statements. And so Paul is alluding to this when he says godless. They don't worship God unholy. They don't set, a t- set aside time for the worship of God. And then he goes on, and this is a clear reference to the fifth commandment. He says, for those who strike their fathers and their mothers, fifth commandment, you shall honor your father and your mother. And he's working his way through the list. For, the, for those, for murderers, that's the tail end of verse 9, verse 10, for the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers. You find that in the, at the tail end of the Ten Commandments, that you shall not bear false witness, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Paul makes a couple of statements there, and he does so by referencing the Ten Commandments. Number one, the law is not laid down for the just. The law is laid down then for the unjust. The law is not laid down for those who are pursuing righteousness. The law is laid down for those who are not pursuing God, who are not pursuing righteousness. Now, you might be tempted then to think, okay, so what Paul is saying is we don't really need to pay attention to the law. After all, if we place our faith in Jesus, the law doesn't have any bearing on us, right? But look carefully at what Paul is saying. He says, the law was not laid down for the just, but for the unjust. He then goes on to talk about all of the stuff that the law speaks to, closely referencing the Ten Commandments. And he makes the statement here at the very end of verse 10, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. 
to healthy teaching. So the law is laid down for that, which is to be the opposite of what it is that Timothy is to be preaching and teaching. Now what that means then is that the focus and the goal of what Timothy is preaching and teaching must be something beyond the law, but it cannot be that which is contrary to the law. What that means is that the law has within it a power or a force that is intended to address those who do not desire God. That same power or force does not apply to those who are pursuing God. But what Paul is saying then is that our pursuit of God cannot in any way be against or contrary to the law. Though the power and the force of the law is not oriented to us, our pursuit of Jesus, if it involves any of these practices, such as lying, such as perjury, such as dishonoring our fathers and our mothers, such as sexual immorality, then our pursuit of God is wrong because the pursuit of God is within the law. Understand that. He makes the statement, whatever is contrary to sound doctrine in verse 11, in accordance with the gospel. So the law accords with the gospel. I want to show you a couple of uses in which the law is to be applied. First off, Whatever Paul is saying here about the law, you need to understand that he thinks the law is, in fact, a good thing. In Romans 7 and verse 12, he makes the statement, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. This is what Paul says about the law. But then he goes on to address a couple of different uses of the law. The law has a restraining influence. It keeps wickedness from running rampant and out of control. There is an element in which the law holds back evil, thereby preserving human life. In that sense, it is good. But the law also has another use, a condemning use, a use that speaks of judgment, that speaks of punishment for those who would break the law. First, the restraining use. Paul in Romans 7 and verse 7, same chapter, he makes the statement, what shall we say then that the law is sin? Should we say that the law is bad, that the law is nothing but sin? He says, by no means. Greek expression, may it never be. It's a double, it's an emphatic, double emphatic. No, 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 we can't say that. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Within Romans 7, Paul is saying that when the law said to him, you shall not covet, that is, you shall not want to take what belongs to your neighbor, you shall not have the desire in your heart to take that which is not yours, to take something from someone else, you shall not covet your neighbor's things. When the law said that, all of a sudden, Paul sensed in his heart a sinful man rising up, almost as though it were a monster, and yet it was Paul. And in that moment, when the commandment said, you shall not covet, Paul immediately starts looking around for something to covet. The moment the law says to him, you will not desire what belongs to someone else, you will not want to take what belongs to someone else, immediately Paul was diagnosed with a defective heart because the heart revealed itself. In this sense, the law is like a light that shines and exposes. 
And the human, the man or woman created in God's image cannot hear that, cannot refuse to be convicted by that. C.S. Lewis, in his great work, Mere Christianity, he talks about what he refers to as the law of human nature. And he says, I've noticed something, and this is in his opening chapter. He says, I've noticed that uh, when we talk about things like fair play and duty to country and not being selfish, when we talk about those things, we all agree with those things. And yet, at the end of the day, I want to cut in line, and I think I should get a free pass. But woe to the man who cuts in line in front of me. He should not get a free pass. And so C.S. Lewis is commenting on this moral law. He says, it, is, it, it bears witness to my own heart. It also bears witness to the duplicitous nature of who I am. Now, having that spiritual understanding that there is a good we ought to do and having it exposed to us that we do not do it leads to an attempt at pharisaical righteousness. Knowing that you do not obey the law creates within you a desire to strive to obey the law. And this is the basis of most, if not all, morality in our civilization. All of us break the speed limit. Raise your hand if you've never broken the speed limit. If you have, okay. When you drive, my friend, you'll understand what I'm talking about. And yet, how many of us would say that the speed limit is a bad thing? Okay, maybe, <laughs> maybe some of us. This last week, the Coca-Cola was closed, I think, uh, on Thursday morning, uh, or maybe it was Friday morning, all morning, because of an accident that happened because individuals were not driving to the conditions. So, the law is a good thing. We recognize that the law is there to prescribe limits. We recognize that we all break those limits, yet we all would still affirm the need and the validity of those limits. And that duplicity within our hearts compels us in whatever measure we are capable of trying to the limited extent that we can to obey the law. So it has an exposing effect that, re- that leads to and results in a restraining effect upon human sinfulness. That's use number one. Use number two, it has a condemning effect. We all know we've broken the law. If I had a penny for every time someone said, nobody's perfect, and I thought in my head, Jesus is, I would be a wealthy man. Paul, in this same passage, in Romans chapter 7, but a little further down in verse 11, he makes this statement, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. He said, I wouldn't have known covetousness if it weren't for the law, and yet now knowing the law, I have all kinds of covetousness inside of me. Apart from the law, he says, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and he makes the statement, I died. And Paul is bringing the argument to a conclusion, an argument that he has started way, way back in chapter 3, in which he has made the statement, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. All are now under God's condemnation. Yes, it's true. There is no one perfect except Jesus Christ. 
And yet we are all called to that standard. We are all called to live a life of holiness and perfection. And if we have it, which none of us have, then there is now judgment waiting for us. Paul says in the same passage, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, it killed me. And now all of us are aware that there is a reckoning, a day of judgment in which we will have our day in court. We will stand before the one who has written the moral law upon our hearts. And there will be no escaping that day of judgment. And many people today in our society and in societies around the world, in every civilization and in every culture, this is the effort. We know what we ought to do. We're going to try harder. There's an ancient Serbian parable that is told of a boy who saw his dad hammering nails into the frame, the door frame of his house. And he didn't think anything of it at first. And then one day he approached his dad and he said, Dad, why are you hammering nails into the door frame? And his dad said to him, Well, son, that's for you. Every time you do something wrong, every time you disrespect your mother, every time you do something contrary to what I have asked and clearly instructed you to do, I hammer a nail into the door frame. And so the little boy thought to himself, oh, this isn't good. I should try to do better. And so he made a deal with his dad. He said, dad, every time you see me doing something good, will you pull the nail out of the door frame? And his dad laughed and said, oh, okay, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And lo and behold, the boy tried really hard. He found ways to conceal from his father all the bad things that he was really doing. And he found ways to present to his father all of the good things. He went out of his way, essentially, to become a Pharisee. And one by one, the boy looked at that door frame as one by one, the, no the nails came out. And he began to feel proud of himself. Look at me. Look at how clever and deceptive I have become. And eventually the day came in which his dad yanked out the last door nail, the last nail out of the door frame. And the kid said, look at that, Dad, no nails. And his dad chuckled and said, yep, but you'll notice that the holes still remain. First Baptist Church, listen, keeping of the law can be done from a pharisaical attitude, but the keeping of the law will never, never, never fill in the holes that we have already created. Which brings us to the third use of the law and really its most crucial use. It's what I would call the edifying or the sanctifying or the saving use of the law. And to illustrate this, I'm going to show you from Jesus' own ministry how he did it. Many of us, when we think of the law, we realize its purpose is to bring about conviction. Its purpose is to help us to realize that we have fallen short of God's standard. And its purpose is to point us towards Jesus. To point us towards the one who can fill in the holes. We're right when we say that. Thus begins the debate. When we do evangelism, we've got to start with the law. We have to start hammering people on how sinful and bad they are, and then we will introduce the gospel. Others say, no, 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 no. You start off with the gospel. You proclaim the good news, and then 
if you need to, you bring in the law. And this is a debate that, that rages throughout all of evangelicalism. It's alive and well today. Now, I just want to draw your attention to how it works. It's not necessarily an either-or proposition, but we need to understand that God's commandments, those things he has prescribed, come hand-in-hand with his gospel. Whether you start with law or start with gospel and proceed to law or proceed to gospel, both come together. Jesus, the woman at the well, John chapter 4, he begins this engagement with her and he starts off the discussion by telling her, I am thirsty, and she says, well, you don't have any bucket to get any water. And he makes the comment to her, I can give you living waters that take away all thirst. This is Jesus starting off with the promise, a, a gift, a miracle so amazing. He says, I can do this for you. He is starting off with a gospel promise. I've got answers. I've got solutions. And immediately, she, the Samaritan woman, takes the discussion towards the law and says, well, you guys say you should worship here on this mountain or on that mountain in Jerusalem, and we say we should worship here. And and she begins this discussion. And Jesus, starting off with gospel proclamation, listening to her try to evade him, try to duck and dodge the message of hope that he is trying to offer to her. He listens to her, and then he proceeds to the law, and he says, you know what? He, He sweeps all this discussion away, all this trivial, vague discussion. She says, go get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, yeah, that's right. You've had five husbands, and the man that you're living with now is not your husband. Indeed, you have spoken well when you say you have no husband. And Jesus is obviously referencing the law, the fact that she has lived outside of the prescriptions of God's word for how she is to be married. So he starts off with gospel, and he moves to law. But the point of it, always, is to call her into a relationship with himself. Next passage, don't flip there, just listen. Luke 18, the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler comes to him and he says, Sir, what must I do to be saved? Well, that's an evangelistic conversation I'd love to have. How many of you have ever had anyone approach you and say, I'd really like to get saved, what do I got to do? Anyone? No, it's never happened. But somehow, miraculously, it happened to Jesus. The rich young ruler comes to him. He says, sir, I want to be saved. The easiest witnessing moment you would ever expect. He calls him good, sir. Now, rather than Jesus saying, look, just follow me quickly in the sinner's prayer. Let me just walk you through this deal. He hears the rich young ruler say, good, sir, tell me what I must do to be saved. And he makes the statement, why? Why do you call me good? There is only one who is good. Keep the commandments. So when he had the opportunity just to go straight to the sinner's prayer, just wrap this thing up and put a nice little pretty bow on it, he does not. With the woman at the well, he started off with gospel proclamation. With the rich young ruler, he makes sure to start with the law. He says, keep the commandments. And of course, the rich young ruler says, yeah, I'm good. I've done all that since I was a kid. I never broke any one of them which we all laugh and say, ha ha, this guy is really trapped in his own deception. And so Jesus says, one thing you still lack, give away all your treasure, give away all your money, give it to the poor, and then follow me. He starts with the commandments, he presses the issue, and he concludes with the gospel invitation, follow me, become a disciple. And of course, the rich young man went away sorrowful. The Samaritan woman went away and told her whole town about Jesus. 
And the rich young man went away, hoping more and trusting more in his riches and in his wealth than in Jesus. In both of these scenarios, whether you start with law or whether you start with gospel or end with gospel or end with law, in both we see that these two things go together, driving you to placing your hope in Jesus Christ. Jesus' use of the law in his own evangelistic efforts shows us that the law is not an end unto itself. It is there to convict us. It is there to condemn us. It is there to drive us like a cattle prod straight to Jesus Christ. Jesus' statement in Matthew chapter 5, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. If you have ever fallen short of the glory of God, which is every person in this room, if you have ever struggled with a sense of guilt or conviction in your soul, which ought to be every person in this room, although I can't say that with confidence. If you have ever wondered, Lord, how can I possibly make it right? Here is the good news. You cannot, but Jesus can, and he has by dying on the cross. He fulfills the law, which in a sense removes all the nails from that door frame and more. As we sit there staring at a door frame full of holes, Jesus is the one who fills them in. As you stand back and you wonder, is there any way that I could ever become right in God's eyes? The answer is that Jesus is the one who can make you right. Notice what Paul says here, verse 11. In accordance with the gospel, the good news, the proclamation of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The law is lawful when it teaches us to restrain and to curb our sinful behavior. The law is lawful when we look to it for instruction in terms of the heart and the character of God. And the law is used lawfully when it is used to drive us straight to Jesus for forgiveness. The law is also useful When we consider our lives in Christ, there is no room for us to be living outside of the law. To be pursuing Jesus is to be honoring the law, trusting in him to fill and fulfill its every requirement. Now, this is where a lot of teaching goes sideways. These guys, these false teachers in Ephesus, were looking at the law And they were looking at it as a means of somehow making themselves right before God. They were coming to this concept of a holy and righteous life, a blessed life. And they were saying, if we do these things, if we focus on this stuff here, if we look at this number 153, somehow, in some way, we will be blessed. We will receive gifts. We will have insight. We will have knowledge. We will have wisdom far beyond what all the rest of these Christians around us will have. We will have special spiritual discernment. We will have blessings. And what they have done And this is a completely appropriate analogy considering our coming into the holiday season. 
They have taken the gift giver and set him aside in order to focus on what they consider to be the gift, such that the gift that is living a righteous life means more than knowing the one who gives it. This is so important, First Baptist. In our pursuit of being godly Christians, and there are things involved in that, such as telling the truth, living a moral lifestyle, not stealing, honoring our parents. In our pursuit of living the holy lifestyle, we cannot do so in a way that does not focus on the glory of God and only focuses on the gifts and the blessings of obedience. It must be obedience for the sake of knowing him. That's the lawful use of the law. Charles Spurgeon told a parable in one of his sermons of a gardener who was growing carrots in his field. And one day as the gardener was out pulling up carrots, he pulled up a truly enormous carrot. He had to have a wheelbarrow in order to move this carrot around. And so he took the carrot to the king. He loved the king. He loved the way the king ruled the land and created an environment of peace and stability. He respected the king for his wisdom. And so he said to himself, I will go and I will take this enormous giant carrot that I have made and I will give it to the king. So he goes to the king and he says, Oh king, I love and I respect you. I am so grateful for the way that you rule over this great land. Here is my greatest carrot of all. I give this to you. The king was so touched that he said, you know what, farmer? I own an enormous acreage right next to your tiny farm. And I am so blessed by your gift of this carrot. I give you that acreage to have as your own. And the farmer said, wow, that's amazing. Thank you, king. Thank you. And he took that blessing and he walked away. At court that day, there was also a rich lord who was in the business of breeding stallions. And he thought to himself as he watched this entire interaction unfold, if a carrot gets you that large of an acreage, what else can we possibly get out of this guy? Looking to the king, not for the greatness and the glory and the beauty of who he is, but looking at him for the benefits he brings, for the blessings he can bestow. So he went home and he got his finest stallion and he came back to the court and he said, O king, You are a great and wonderful king. And I want to show you my love and my appreciation by presenting to you this amazing, fine stallion. And the king, discerning his heart and realizing the true intention of this man's gift, said, thanks, have a nice day. And the Lord said, but wait a minute, wait a minute. I come to present you with this this offering, should I not get some sort of blessing? I mean, look at, the, look at the carrot farmer. He gave you a carrot. It was a big carrot, but it was still just a carrot. I'm presenting you with a stallion. And the king said, no, 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 no. The carrot farmer came to me and presented me with a carrot. You gave yourself a horse. Listen to me, First Baptist Church. The proper use of the law is not that we would strive to obey it and somehow incur blessing from God through it. 
Obeying the law does bring blessing. But the true use of the law is that you would honor and love and worship Jesus Christ. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word to us this morning. Lord, let us all strive to be humble carrot farmers and not wealthy lords seeking greater wealth. Let us give you all that we have, the best that we have. Let us give you all our hearts and minds and souls in worship to know you, Lord, whatever else may come. Lord, let us be a people who can sing in truth whatever may happen, whatever should come. We know it is well with our souls. But Father, we want you more than any of the gifts that you provide. We want you to be the thing we look at. We want you to be the one we gaze upon. We want your glory and your beauty to be that with which we are preoccupied in our lives. God, help us to know you more and more. Let you, Lord, we pray, allow your son to be the vision, our vision. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.